we must all remember the lessons of the past as a guide for the management of the present and the planning for the future. I am the son of sugar workers who hasn't forgotten his roots. Welcome to the Pepper Pot. Assalamu alaikum, and welcome to the Pepper Pot. The proximity of high and low caste indentured Indians in immigration depots, on board ships, and across the Caribbean contributed greatly to the dismantling of traditional caste barriers that had long benefited some while oppressing others. This close proximity forced our ancestors to share many things, including physical spaces, resources, and experiences which effectively eliminated the religious and caste barriers that had once dominated their communities. Now, there are varying accounts of the effects that this breakdown of caste had on our people. Some accounts suggest that it led to greater social and economic mobility, with individuals from lower castes achieving greater prosperity, while others argue that the breakdown of caste also led to the erosion of traditional cultural practices and values that had been an integral part of Indian society. For example, Munshi Raman Khan, an indentured immigrant, denounced immigration depots as a place where higher caste Hindus began to lose their religion. He writes, These people resorted to infidelity. They did not hesitate to have other women from different castes and creeds to keep them company. They were also very close and intimate with the untouchables, and they ate, drank, had fun with them, and started relations with their women folk. Their company was, therefore, those very people who ate pigs and cows and they even impregnated their seeds in these women. In his account, Khan highlights the ways in which indentured Indians were exposed to new and unfamiliar customs and practices. These ultimately challenged their existing beliefs and values. As a result, many resorted to behaviors that were traditionally forbidden in their communities. In contrast to Khan, Brinsley Samaru argues that these spaces represented a rupture a breaking of old ties and a hopeful anticipation of the possibilities that awaited them. Specifically, Samaru writes, On board ships, the castes and regions of India were mixed as in the depots, and the common tasks, assigned with little respect to persons, served as a great leveler. The only separation on board was by gender and marital status. Replacing the previous ties of caste and region was a new form of bonding, which was started in the depots and strengthened on the ship. This bonding became greater on those ships which underwent difficult passages. For example, in the churning, swirling waters of the Mad Sea, so often encountered off the Cape of Good Hope. This cemented when the immigrants joined together to resist ill usage by European seamen. For this reason, the Indians resented being separated into different colony batches when they arrived in the Caribbean. Samaru's perspective sheds light on the ways in which immigration depots and ships represented more than just a physical journey to a new destination. Instead, they were spaces of social and cultural transformation, where old ties were broken and new forms of community and solidarity emerged. This process was facilitated by the mixing of people from different backgrounds and the shared experience of undertaking a challenging and dangerous journey together. Similarly, 
plantations also forced many indentured Indians to dismantle the barriers that previously divided them. Like the ship, the plantation was a self-contained world, where everyone was figuratively in the same boat, regardless of their former status or identity. The hard work and harsh living conditions on the plantation meant that everyone had to work together to survive, regardless of their previous social standing. This experience of shared struggle helped to create a sense of camaraderie and solidarity among the indentured Indians that cut across caste and religious differences. Additionally, the plantation system often resulted in the creation of new forms of identity and community that superseded traditional caste and religious affiliations. This was particularly true for those indentured Indians who were born or raised on the plantation, as they were more likely to identify with the plantation community than with their original caste or religious groups. Belief in bad eye is deeply ingrained in Indo-Caribbean culture, and its origins can be traced back to ancient Indian spiritual and cultural practices. You see, this belief has been passed down through generations, and it's still prevalent in many Indo-Caribbean households today. For many members of my community, the belief in bad eye is a source of comfort and protection. It provides a framework for understanding and explaining the negative events that can occur in life and it offers a sense of agency and control in the face of adversity. When something unexpected or negative happens, people may attribute it to someone giving them bad eye or casting a curse on them. In order to protect themselves from the effects of bad eye, people often engage in various rituals and practices. For example, they may wear amulets or charms that are believed to ward off negative energy or perform special spiritual cleansings to remove any negative energy that may be present. Seeking the assistance of religious leaders like pundits is also common, as they may have specialized knowledge and practices for protecting individuals from the effects of bad eye. Seven times clockwise, outside it goes, into an old pan and burned. The stronger the sting, the more certain it was that somebody cast bad eye your way. The soft hum of Sri Prakash Gosai's Hanuman Chalisa can be heard, playing from the speakers on a night table, as my mother would murmur mantras and circle my head, her hand clenching a crumpled sheet of newspaper filled with onion and garlic skins, dried chilies and salt. Despite the comfort and protection that the belief in bad eye may provide, it can also perpetuate harmful attitudes and behaviors. It may lead individuals to become overly paranoid or suspicious of others, and may also be used as a means of deflecting responsibility for negative events or circumstances, rather than taking ownership of one's actions. Our parents come from a country burdened with a legacy of trauma. Our largely untold history recounts our indentured ancestors being beaten on the journey across the Kalapani, women and children on board falling victim to sexual assault by their plantation overseers, 
all were confined to unsanitary living quarters that festered disease and death. Those who survived the journey found cruel treatment and hard labor waiting on the sugar plantations instead of the abundance of gold and opportunity they were promised. Shortly after Guyana gained its independence from the British in 1966, Lyndon Forbes Sampson Burnham was established as the new state's head of government. In the 1980s, Burnham led Guyana as a dictator, and his policies led the country to economic stagnation. My father remembers the misuse of power in unfair elections, the banning of wheat flour that created immediate deprivation of daily meals, and racial tensions between the Indo and Afro-Caribbeans that escalated into riots and massacres in the Guyana he left behind. Guyana has been one of the poorest countries in South America, with a per capita GDP cited in years past of just $4,000. In a 2014 report by the World Health Organization, Guyana was cited as having a suicide rate that was four times the global average. It isn't a wonder to me that the legacy of intergenerational trauma feeds itself in this ugly cycle. Growing up in a West Indian household, I've never felt comfortable enough to even bring up the conversation on mental health. You hear in passing the stories of others whose depression is written off as an incurable illness. Suicides are widely believed to be selfishly and senselessly committed, and people in the madhouse are destined to stay there because there's no hope for them. With attitudes like this, it has never shocked me that my parents' native Guyana has one of the highest suicide rates in the world. Anthony Otar, a U.S. licensed lawyer and Indo-Guyanese mental health advocate, took the lead in 2014 to launch the largest private mental health initiative to address the report on Guyana's high suicide rates. Otar cites fear of gossip and fear of being locked away at the National Psychiatric Hospital, commonly referred to as the Burby's Madhouse, as just a few of the many factors that contribute to a lack of understanding what mental health is. What will people think is a mindset that has transcended oceans, thousands of miles across continents, and generations. It is a subconscious fear that has been so deeply ingrained in us, in my mindset as a young Indo-Guyanese woman. Even as a first-generation Canadian-born and raised professional 
I think twice about choices I make in how I carry myself in my community. The culture I come from that supports this mindset made seeking therapy seem like such a ludicrous idea. As young people of diaspora with hyphenated identities, we are children of immigrants who have internalized the notion of saving face. This conditioning has us believing that anything that can be a cause of embarrassment, judgment, or disrespect within our community should be kept under lock and key. Many of us grew up in households where we were never taught what mental health is, instead hearing in passing the perceptions that perpetuates cultural stigma. It takes unlearning such beliefs and unlearning the guilt and perceived shame that comes with it. Despite arriving in the Caribbean in 1845, Hindus and Muslims were not granted religious freedoms in the region until the mid-1900s. They encountered numerous obstacles, including a lack of recognition for funeral rites, marriages, and resources to teach their scriptures and spread their religion. For example, by 1893, roughly 110,000 Indians lived in Guyana, but only 10,000 Indian couples had received marriage certificates the vast majority of which received them after declaring themselves married when they arrived in the colony. Hindus and Muslims also lacked social, economic, and political support for establishing religiously affiliated schools, and their children were often considered illegitimate or bastards. To make matters worse, many were denied education or employment opportunities due to their refusal to convert, which often involved adopting westernized names, clothing, and cultural practices. You see, an often overlooked part of our history is that indentured Indians actually reintroduced Islam to the Caribbean. Historians estimate that around 80,000 Muslims, or roughly 14 to 15 percent of Indian indentured laborers, were displaced to the Caribbean between 1845 and 1917. In fact, by 1998, Guyana had 154 mosques, Trinidad and Tobago had 112, Suriname had 100, Jamaica had six, and Barbados had four. Many mosques in the Caribbean now serve as both places of worship and educational institutions, known as maktabs, a place of writing, or madrasas, a place for studying. Today, Islamic groups across the Caribbean are committed more than ever to preserving the practice of their religion throughout the region, and for good reason. They have had to fight long and hard to maintain their religious practices in the face of colonialism and the indenture system itself which sought to erase their culture and religious traditions. One such example is the Jose or Jihadji massacre, which occurred on October 30, 1884, in San Fernando, Trinidad. On that day, British colonists opened fire on peaceful Muslim worshippers who were participating in the Jose procession, the local name for the annual Muharram commemoration of the death of the Prophet Muhammad's grandson. At the time, there was a ban on this commemoration on the island, but the worshippers continued to observe it. The death toll at the end of the day rests between 19 to 22, while hundreds more were severely injured. The massacre had far-reaching implications not only for the Muslim community, but for the entire country. 
It sparked outrage among the local Indian population and intensified the anti-colonial movement in Trinidad. It also exposed the harsh realities of British colonial rule and the injustices faced by marginalized communities. But despite these challenges, the Muslim community in the Caribbean has continued to thrive, and the practice of Islam has become an integral part of the cultural fabric of the region. In fact, today, Muslim festivals are celebrated across the Caribbean, and the call to prayer can be heard from mosques in many towns and cities. You know, food has held a significant place in my life for as long as I can remember. From my father's mouth-watering cook-up rice to the seven curry dishes we savored at Jandy's, nothing quite compared to a delicious, home-cooked Guyanese meal. You see, my family also had a tradition of embracing new foods and immersing ourselves in different cultures. I mean, who doesn't love a good fried rice? However, as I matured, I came to realize that not everyone shared the same experience with food. Some of my friends had been restricted from eating certain foods, and beef and pork were the most common culprits. In fact, many indentured Indians brought to the Caribbean were not accustomed to eating meat, let alone beef and pork, because of their religious beliefs. You see, Hinduism and Islam, the two most dominant religions among indentured Indians, forbid the consumption of beef and pork. However, for many indentured Indians, the conditions of their new environment and the experiences of their new lives in the Caribbean led many to abandon their faith and their diets. You see, one of the main reasons for this shift was the lack of traditional vegetarian foods in the Caribbean. Many indentured Indians were accustomed to a diet of rice, lentils, and vegetables, but these items, alongside spices and other ingredients that are central to Indian cuisines, were scarce on the plantations that they were forced to work on. In contrast, beef and pork were often provided by plantation owners as a part of workers' rations making them a more accessible source of protein. In addition, and as was my experience, the influence of other cultures across the Caribbean played a significant role in shaping the diets of our ancestors. The African and European settlers, for example, who had already established their own food cultures in the Caribbean, regularly consumed meat as well as beef and pork. As indentured Indians became exposed to these traditions, some grew more open to the idea of consuming meat. The hierarchical nature of the plantation system is yet another factor. In particular, plantation owners often used food as a way to control their workers. By providing beef and pork to those who were previously vegetarian, plantation owners were able to assert their power over them. In some cases, they even forced their workers to eat meat. There are many factors that led some indentured Indians to abandon their religion and their diet. Yet in light of this, many held on. Some even continue to practice their faith in secret, away from the watchful eyes of their owner. Over time, the dietary habits of the indentured Indians became more diverse as they assimilated to their new environment and adopted new cultural practices.
As we come to a close, we want to take a moment to express our sincere appreciation for the support from all of our listeners. Now, my name is Ryan Navinja Ramdin, and together with my partner, the artist Sarasati Ramprashad, we bring to you the Peppa Pot. In this podcast, we explore the legacy of Indo-Caribbean people and the survivors of Indian indentureship. As children of the Guyanese diaspora, we are paying homage to our ancestral roots through this body of creative work. So, what can you expect from the Peppa Pot? Well, join us on Sundays as Sarasati and I unpack the untold history of Guyana through narrative storytelling in Season 1. We share the story of Indian indentureship, discuss our experiences as first-generation Guyanese Canadians, and unapologetically confront some of the most pressing issues facing the Indo-Guyanese community. As newcomers to the podcasting world, we're eager to hear your thoughts. What did you like about this episode? What do you want to hear more of? Your feedback is invaluable to us, so don't hesitate to shoot us an email at thepeppapot at gmail.com. Your encouragement helps us grow and learn more about you, our audience. And for those of you who just can't get enough of our grand story, we encourage you to check out the resources listed in the description below. Who knows what stories and discoveries await you? Follow us on Instagram, YouTube, LinkedIn, and Facebook at the Peppa Pot Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for tuning into this episode, and we'll see you again on the Peppa Pot next Sunday.